Let's pray together. Father, what we have sung is indeed our prayer. We want to be ever, always, all for you. Lord, we pray that you would make it so that our boast is only in you. And we pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would destroy all the pride in our hearts. We pray that you would cause your holiness to be so purging and so renewing that we want to pray the words of Psalm 101. We pray, Father, that you would cause your holiness to be as fearful to, uh, to us as it is, that we might all the more feel the need for Jesus, who alone has clean hands and an upright heart, who alone has the right to enter into your presence. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to take refuge in him, to hope fully in him, and to take every thought captive to the knowledge of him, and we ask it in his name. Amen. There are all kinds of ways that people explain the world today. And one of the dominant influences in our culture, I think it's safe to say this is a culture-shaping influence, is the influence of a man named Sigmund Freud. And um, this week, I, I began to read about Sigmund Freud and I was astonished. I mean, this is one of those things that, that um, I, I'm sure I, I remember hearing about this kind of thing from long ago, but I had, I had forgotten that this was the case. Um, and, and, and as I go into this, it reminds me of, of something that Professor Jim Parker, who teaches at uh, the seminary, uh, once said to me. He said that uh, he, was, he was trying to find the best arguments for atheism and the best arguments against uh, the truth of the scriptures. And he went back and he read David Hume. And, and his response was, is this the best they've got? Is this it? And I, I sort of had a similar experience. Listen, listen to, to this about Sigmund Freud. This is largely informed by a book by a, name, a man named uh, Philip Reif. And the book is entitled, The Mind Freud, The Mind of a Moralist. He recounts, Reef does, how Freud started from a materialist position, the idea that your brain is nothing but a chemical machine or an electric circuit, and everything is strictly physical going on there. But with the help of his study of hypnosis, <laughs> hypnosis, can you believe this? Our culture has been shaped by a man who got his ideas from his conclusions derived from hypnotizing people. <laughs> I'm sorry, anybody that, uh, you, look, you can put a lab coat on him. You can put him in a study lined with books. You can put a distinguished pipe in his hand and a beard on his face. If he's practicing hypnosis, he's in the class of cranks, charlatans, frauds. That's where he goes. This is not scientific. Hypnosis. 
It, it reminds me, recently I was reading about this Russian novelist, Russian-American novelist named Vladimir Nabokov. Nabokov, I don't think he was a Christian. He may have been, I don't know. That, that's not one of the things that jumps out about Nabokov when you read about him. In fact, I've, I've looked to see whether he's a Christian and I can't find out. He thought Freud was a total fraud. He's exactly right. Well, with the help of hypnosis, he gradually discovered it. Here, here I'm going to quote. Listen to what Freud discovered. This is a quote from Philip Reif. The numerous volitional, that refers to your will, your choices. Freud discovered the numerous volitional elements in each case history. A desire to be sick. A will not to forget painful memories. Consequently, he reasoned, the patient's conscious cooperation is required as a necessary part of the cure. He must be taught to renounce his symptoms. Does that sound familiar? To, break quote, right? I'm not quoting now. Does this sound familiar? Renounce your systems? You know what that symptoms that sounds like? Put off, right? What I'm, what I'm driving at here as I read this quote to you is where Freud is right there is a profound consonance between what he says and what the Bible says. The patient, I'm going to resume the quote, he must be taught to renounce his symptoms rather than harbor them as a mistaken way of resolving his difficulties. Neurosis was no intruder, ruining the happy life of the emotions. It was not simply the objective symptoms manifested by the patient, but was, beyond that, an element of Character, that word is emphasized, it's italicized, identical with the patient himself. It was the host himself, or rather his moral character that must be treated. That's what Freud believed. Freud's perspective, Reef goes on to explain, seems to have been that people were sick because rather than correctly expunging their emotional tensions, they held them in, and, and they became like poison on the inside. He even viewed death psychologically. This is a quote from Reef. Death is more than a bodily event. Death is willed. That's what Freud thought. So I say, where Freud is right, his conclusions line up significantly with things taught in the Bible. But he has arrived at these conclusions through a, I'm going to put, you know, big quotes around this, scientific method. Hypnosis, please. His best suggestions for cures line up with biblical teaching, but the worldview in which he operated is, is nothing like the Judaism of his heritage. And it's nothing like the Christianity taught in the whole Bible. And I'm talking about him because of the content of Psalm 101. I would invite you to turn to Psalm 101, where we are going to hear from David volitional statements about what he will and will not do, okay? In other words, David is going to tell us, this is what I've chosen to embrace, and this is what I've chosen to reject, and here is how I'm going to apply these values, these things that I value. And what I'm going to argue here this morning is that the things that Freud thought, well, I think Freud's basically a crank. I think he's a charlatan, a huckster, and, and the man, however clever, however credentialed, however influential, the man is a rebel. 
He is in rebellion against Almighty God who has revealed himself in the Bible, who has declared what right and wrong are. And, and our society is following those who have rejected this truth that is grounded in the character of the living God. And they've rejected that truth in favor of theories that they derive from things like hypnosis, in favor of theories with, which line up with the idea that life spontaneously came into being somehow when the right chemicals and proteins came together. Is that the best you've got? Yeah, that's the best they've got. That's the best they've got. So what I'm trying to do is, is inspire in you confidence in the Bible's explanation for where the world came from and in the Bible's proposals for how people get better. So what we're going to see in Psalm 101 in verses 1 and 2 is the way that David embraces praise and integrity. And then in verses 3 through 5, he rejects evil. This outline is in your bulletin. And then in verses 6 through 8, he talks about how he's going to apply these policies. Uh, this psalm is remarkably cohesive. It's, it's bound together. These first two statements, um, there, there, there are three times in these first two statements where David says, I will. That's a volitional choice. It's a decision that he has made. And, and, and this psalm, this short, compact, cohesive psalm, it's like it gives us a snapshot, uh, a flavor of the biblical worldview. And, and so look at what David says here in Psalm 101 verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. Now we've been doing this long enough that we know, we've been in the Psalms long enough, that we know that every time we encounter steadfast love, what we're encountering is that Hebrew word chesed, which, which is God's way of talking about himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That's where that idea comes from. This is God's loving kindness. And then we also have been doing this long enough to know that when we read references to justice or righteousness or justice, this also is deriving from God's character. So when God declared who he was to Moses, a, a God, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, there's chesed, and justice. That's who God is. So these ideas, they're not, they're not something we derive from waving something back and forth in front of people's eyes until they seem to go into some sort of state of stupor that they could be faking for all we know. These ideas are grounded in the character of the living, eternal God who created this world. So what David is saying here is, I am going to sing about the living God. That's what he's saying. This is a song, Psalm 101, is a song about God's steadfast love and everlasting righteousness. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Yahweh. And I say Yahweh because when you read the word Lord there, the word R in your Bible, it's a capital R, but it's squashed. It's a small caps. That's reflecting the, the name of God, Yahweh. O Yahweh, to you, I will, you could translate this psalm. I will make music. So David is singing to the Lord about God's attributes. And what he's going to do is he's going to take steadfast love and justice and he's going to talk to us about what the result of those things have in his own life. 
That's what he's doing here. That's the connection between verse 1 and verse 2. So in verse 2, he says, I will ponder, the ESV renders this, I will ponder the way that is blameless. And that word ponder, that's the word that was used back in Psalm 2 when um, the psalmist urged the wicked, he urges the wicked kings, he says, therefore, O kings, be wise. That's the word translated ponder. And uh, it's this Hebrew term sakal. And it's also used in Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua 1, 7 and 8, when Joshua is told repeatedly, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate, it on, meditate on it day and night, and then you will have good success, and then you will make your way prosperous. That having good success and prospering, uh, that, that's this word again. It's also used when David addresses Solomon at the end of his life, 1 Kings 2, and uh, and, and David says to Solomon, you need to keep the law of Moses, then you will have success. And, and it's this word. So I think we could, we could translate this something like, I will cause success. I will, what he's talking about is the kind of meditation on the Bible that results in skillful living. When, and that, and they, they're trying to capture some of this when they render it, I will ponder. I will cause success in the way that is blameless. But that word, as, as from Joshua 1, 7 and 8, 1 Kings 2, 3, uh, and, and other places that it's used, it's clear, that in Deuteronomy it appears this way, it's clear that that word happens when meditation on the Scriptures is being urged. So what David is saying is, essentially, as a result of my study of the Scriptures, and as a result of my experience of God revealing himself in the scriptures. That's what's happening. God reveals himself through the Bible. Just as a kind of point of application here, this is why we read the Bible interspersed in between our singing. Our, our worship, we, we want to perceive our worship as a response to God's revelation of himself. God shows us who he is, we respond with praise. That's why we open with a call to worship that's from the scriptures. We sing a couple of songs. We read a passage of scripture. We sing some more. We read another passage. We sing some more. We are responding to God's revelation. That's what David's doing right here. I will ponder the way that is blameless. That's the way that's revealed in the Bible. I'm going to ponder that. And his pondering of that results in him saying, I'm going to sing. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well... I don't feel like singing. And what I would prescribe for you is what David says right here. I will ponder the way that is blameless. I would encourage you, if you don't feel like singing, you don't feel like worshiping, I would encourage you to meditate on the scriptures. There are all kinds of things working against us being people who have the ability to meditate. And you want to resist the screen. You want to resist all the stuff that's making us stupid, shallow, you want to resist all the stuff that's making it where we can't pay attention and engage in deep thought. And if you'll, if you'll cultivate that, if you'll cultivate a meditative, ponderous contemplation of the Scriptures, what's going to happen is your heart is going to be reshaped and reformed, and you're going to become somebody that wants to praise God because God is irresistibly glorious. David says here, I will ponder the way that is blameless. And then look at his reaction there. 
Oh, when will you come to me? David seems to have this this idea that God is coming. God is coming and he's going to make all things new. Where do you get that idea? The Bible, right? The the Lord's going to make all things right. And from David's, David's meditation on the scriptures, he's responding, Look, Lord, you say you're going to make things right. When are you going to come do it? And then look at what he commits himself to in the rest of verse 2. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will sing, verse 1. I will ponder the way that is blameless, verse 2. To be, I will walk with integrity. When he says, within my house, I think what he says is, when nobody's looking. When nobody's looking, the way that is blameless that I've been pondering in the scriptures is going to line up with the way that I conduct myself in private. We all need to take stock of ourselves right here. We all need to look at our lives and we need to say, where in my life does my character, my, my hidden actions, where do my hidden actions not correspond with the teaching of the Scriptures? And then what we need to do is we need to repent. We need to repent And we need to recommit ourselves. We need to embrace these first-person singular volitional statements. It is is by grace to hear of God's glory, to see the Scriptures, and then to resonate with these choices that the biblical author is making, David is making. Resonate with those choices. Make them for yourself. I will walk with integrity of heart. Why does he want to do that? He wants to do that because the loving kindness and judgment of verse 1, I will sing of steadfast love and justice, loving kindness and judgment. Those things are rooted in God's character, which is revealed in the scriptures. And then the wisdom and the way of integrity and the hope for the Lord's coming, this all derives from the Bible's teaching. And that prompts his resolution to walk in integrity. Life I will walk with integrity of heart. Life flows from the heart. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life. Your heart is is where your thoughts come from. It's where your impulses come from. And and what's being reflected for us here in Psalm 101, 1 and 2 is a heart that has been formed by the Scriptures. That, that results in a desire for integrity. Okay, so those verses 1 and 2, David tells us what he's going to do. The, he's going to embrace praise and integrity. Verses 3 through 5, he's going to reject evil. So verses 1 and 2, I will, I will, I will. Look at verse 3. I will not. And then look down at the end of verse 5. I will not. And in between, at the middle of verse 4, end of verse 4, I will know nothing of evil. Okay, so he's going to embrace praise and integrity. He's going to reject evil. And look at where it starts in verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Literally, what this says is something like, I will not set before my eyes a matter of 
Belial. That's, what, that's the way the text reads. Belial is a demonic force. And for some reason, translations often render this, I think it's a name, Belial. They often render it worthlessness. But here's, here's the bottom line. What David is saying is, I am not going to put before myself that I'm going to gaze on and contemplate lovingly and cultivate an appetite for. I'm not going to put anything like that before my eyes that derives from demonic influence. I will not set before my eyes a matter of Belial. Anything that is worthless. Now, um, this is a world that God has created. And we are people created by God, which means that all of our desires, the things that we're attracted to, the things that we hope for, that we yearn for, these are all at some, at some root seed level desires that God has planted in our hearts, ways that God has wired us. Now, sometimes people's desires are, are all twisted and corrupted and broken and, and, and smashed by the fall. Everything is, is touched by the fall. But nevertheless, the, what, the reason I'm saying these things is because Satan and his minions can only try to twist and corrupt what God has made good. That's all they can do. So, so the desires that we feel have some righteous expression. The yearnings, the longings of our hearts have some righteous way for them to be realized. And here, what we want to do is we want to put away the matter of Belial, right? We want to put away the demonic expression of the realization of those desires, put off, and then we want to put on some righteous way to seek to have that desire or that yearning fulfilled. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. There's a, there's a, a clear and obvious connection between what you look at and what you think about, and then how your heart gets shaped. And those thoughts, they, they grow into uh, inclinations and yearnings and longings. And then those things grow into actions. And then actions become habits, and habits become character, and your character becomes your destiny. And what David is saying here is, I am going to back that thing up to my sight, and then to my contemplations. And all of this is going to result in me having a heart that's shaped by the teaching of Scripture so that I sing and praise God's love and justice. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. This is something that I think this is one of those verses that everybody in this room ought to have memorized. Psalm 101.3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And then we need, to, we need to make recourse to it every time we're tempted to look longingly on something forbidden, on something perverse, on something that we know that's not what God wants me to see. We need to apply this verse all the time in our lives. We need to pray that the Lord, like Augustine, Lord, command what you will, but will what you command. You can... If you will will for me to obey your commands, you can give me any command you want. And, and the glorious thing about the Bible is that God wills for us to want what he has commanded through the scriptures. It's through our contemplation of statements like this that we become, to, we become people who want to say things like this. 
I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And then verse, the rest of verse 3 says, I hate the work of those who fall away. I think it would be better to render this, I hate the work of those who swerve. Because this is, this is more active. These are people who have veered off course. They've looked lovingly on forbidden things, and then they've chosen to veer from the straight and narrow way. They've swerved. And David says, I hate their work. It shall not cling to me. It shall... The word for cling is the word that's used when um, um, it's stated in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave. And cleave. That's the word. And David is saying, the work of those who have swerved from the way of righteousness, that is not going to cleave to me. I am not going to have a relationship with that. I am not going to hold that to my bosom as something that I yearn for. I hate the work of those who swerve. It shall not cleave to me. And then look at verse 4. This is just a natural result of this. A perverse heart shall be far from me. There's a kind of indirect recipe for a perverse heart here. How do you get a perverse heart? You look on matters of Belial. You, you, you look at things that are demonic, that are sinful, warped, twisted expressions of God's righteous and good design. You look at those things and then you yearn for those things. You cleave to those things. You love the work of people that have swerved from the way of righteousness. And the result of all that is perversity in your heart. Our, our, our character, our minds are amazingly uh, malleable by the thoughts that we think. People that, people that study the brain, they see that these paths, pathways in your brain, these ruts that get formed, they can be reshaped. We want to be people whose brains are riddled with ruts of Bible verses. That's who we want to be. We want to be people who's, who have carved into our thinking, into the pathways of, of our thoughts on the, on the surface of our brains. We want to be people whose thoughts are of the Lord, whose thoughts are of His righteousness and His way and all the glory that He has promised. This, that's why David is saying, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. And then the end of verse 4, I will, literally what he says here is, um, he says, um, evil I will not know. Evil I will not know. And I think that, that biblical sense of no, David is saying, I'm, I'm not going to mate with evil. I am not going to... Uh, engage in an ongoing, long-standing, loving relationship with evil. He's repudiating all that. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity within my heart, in integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything worthless. The work of those who fall away, those who swerve, it shall not cling, cling to me. I will not know evil. And then all of this is going to start having repercussions in the kind of people in David's presence. What we think about has a, has a direct uh, outworking in the kind of people that we like to be around. David says in verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly. 
Now, slander, to start with, that's, that's wicked. It is misrepresentative speech. It, it's, it's, it's talking down a neighbor, right? Whoever slanders his neighbor, so they're saying wicked things about their neighbor, secretly, which means that they're saying things in private that they wouldn't say in public. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, David says, I will destroy. This is, this is a, a kind of take-no-prisoners attitude toward enforcing righteousness. What David is saying is, I'm going to have a zero-tolerance policy for people that, that don't say in public what they would say in private. And then he goes on, whoever has a haughty look. Uh, the expression here is high of eyes. Uh, somebody that's high of eyes, their attitude is, well, I'm superior to those little people. I'm, I'm higher, more exalted, above those little people. And, and then that's related to whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart. The, the word for arrogant, or the phrase for arrogant heart here literally is broad of heart. And, um, and, and it, it really kind of threw me because that same expression is used about Solomon. Over in 1 Kings, the Lord granted to Solomon a, a, a broad heart. They, they sometimes translate it breadth of mind. So I think the picture here, somebody high of eyes and broad of heart, this is somebody who is intelligent. They are intelligent, and they're really proud of it too. And they know that they're smarter than the average horse, right? And they think they're superior to all those foolish, little, not clever people. And David is saying, I've got no time for these uppity slanderers running around acting like they're better than other people. I've got no place for those people. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure, he says there in verse 5. Now, why would he say that? Why would he refuse to endure slanderers and arrogant, proud people? Because... Bad company, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, corrupts good character. And, and, and here I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves, what kind of people are around me? What kind of people do I enjoy? Do I enjoy being around people that they're really smart, and when you get them in private, they will just savage the people that they like to make fun of? Is that the kind of person I am? Is that the kind of people I like to be around? If so, we need to repent. We, need, we, we, we want to embrace what David says here. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, whoever's just mocking and deriding and, and scorning the little people who are so foolish in private, we need to embrace David's model. I am, I am not going to allow that to cultivate in me a heart that, that thinks that stuff is really juicy. I don't want any part of that. So we've got the, the integrity and the praise embraced in verses 1 and 2. We've got the evil rejected in verses 3 through 5. And then we've got the policies applied in verses 6 through 8. So look at verse 6. David says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. So he's not going to tolerate the arrogant slanderers, but he's going to get close to himself, the faithful in the land. The equivalent of that today is believers, 
People professing faith in Jesus, people pursuing holiness together. I mean, I think we could say fellow church members. This is who I want to be around. I want to be around other people committed to what I'm committed to. That, I think that's what we would apply. That's how we would apply this today. I want to be around other people who value what I value. I want to be other, around other people who look at the world the way that I look at the world so that the truth of the scriptures will be reinforced in my life through their influence. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. And then verse 6 goes on. He who walks in the way that is blameless. That's exactly the phrase that was used back up in verse 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. He who walks in the way that is blameless. What I'm going to say about this way is probably not going to be surprising to you. The way that is blameless is the way that's taught in Scripture. People that obey the Bible are the people that I want to be around, is what David is saying. Um, This calls to mind, I think, Psalm 1, where... um, The psalmist says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And there's an opposite way too, isn't there? There's the the way uh, that the wicked, the rebellious in Psalm 2 are walking in. When they're warned, uh, they're they're told at the end end of Psalm 2, therefore, O kings, be wise. You could, I mean, it's like this ponder here in 101.2. Therefore, O kings, be wise, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. What way is that? The way that says, I don't need this God of the Bible. I don't need his moral requirements. I don't, maybe I'll find some other explanation that'll involve hypnosis or something. That's the way that's going to be destroyed. He who walks in the way that is blameless, David says, shall minister to me. Okay, so David is the king. And he's got counselors. He's got people that minister to him. And what David is saying is, I'm going to listen to the voices that, that I can tell that person's heart reflects the heart of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Those are the voices that I'm going to listen to. What voices do you value? There are a lot of sources of influence in our culture. And there, there are a lot of ways to be corrupted. What, what's the most prominent voice in your life? I think it's a great opportunity to take stock. We should all do this regularly. What influences me more? Facebook and the implicit values articulated by my sphere of friends uh, as they post on social social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or whatever, uh, or or maybe it's the news media. Maybe it's a set of blogs that you read. Maybe maybe it's uh, really smart people that you watch on television. What are the voices that you listen to? Are they crowding out this voice? What is the most significant influence in your life? Is it coming from the scriptures or from some other source? David says, he who walks in a way that is blameless shall minister to me. Those whose lives are shaped by the scriptures, those those whose hearts are shaped by the scriptures, those are the voices I'm going to listen to. Verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. Um, you know, this is, this is exactly uh, the way he had referred to the faithful in the land, verse 6, that they may dwell with me. And, and now I'm not going to have uh, treacherous deceivers around me. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. 
Okay, so again, David is saying, I'm not going to tolerate wicked influences. And then he concludes, uh, ver, uh, that was verse 7, sorry, he concludes in verse 8, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So what he's trying to do is achieve a purified culture, a city where God is represented by the inhabitants, where God's character is reflected among them. Now, there's, there's, there's sort of a striking contrast between what David articulates here and what we know of his actual life, isn't there? If you're familiar from, with the story of Samuel, from about 2 Samuel chapter 11, that famous story where David set something before his eyes that he shouldn't have been looking at, and then the, the, the outworkings of those events, you know, David, he gazes on Bathsheba, he lusts after her, and then he has, deceptively, treacherously, he has her husband put to death. And then, in con- so that's in contrast with verse 3, isn't it? And with uh, a lot of the other things that's art- that are articulated here. But then, uh, this psalm, there's all this stuff about how he's going he's gonna to destroy and, and not tolerate those who are wicked and haughty. Well, the rest of 2 Samuel is a story about how David failed to do justice. So in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, Nathan tells David, I'm going to raise up evil against you out of your own house. And, and what happens as sort of an outworking of God's judgment on David for what he had done is David's son Amnon rapes David's daughter Tamar. And then David doesn't do justice on Amnon. And as a result, Absalom, another one of David's son, sons, by Tamar's mother, he murders Absalom. I'm, I'm sorry, Absalom murders Amnon. And then David doesn't do justice on Absalom. And then eventually Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem and he treacherously, lyingly, telling lies, steals the hearts of the people and, and uh, rebels against his father and tries to seize the kingdom. And even when Absalom is killed, David mourns and weeps over Absalom so much that it compromises the loyalty of the people that are with him. And Joab has to tell him, hey, you better come out here and encourage your soldiers before everybody deserts you. So there's a stark contrast between the way that David actually lived and the things that Psalm 101, the things he commits himself to in Psalm 101. What do we do with that? Well, uh, here's one thing to do with it. I think we can see Psalm 101 as a statement of repentance and renewal, which gives us hope, doesn't it? Because even if we've blown it time after time after time after time, we can renew ourselves in a commitment to pursue holiness. But there's also hope here in a new and better way, and that's this. I think that here in Psalm 101, as so often in the Psalms, David is speaking in the first person singular, fully aware that the descendant that's been promised to him This is what Peter says in in Acts 2. He says, being a prophet about David and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to put one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the Christ. And I think we can say David anticipates that promised descendant of his will be holy and righteous in a way that he never could have been. And it's, it's, it's just one of the great truths about Christianity that Jesus is righteous. 
If you're, if you're new here and uh, you, maybe you haven't been a regular here, the, the good news that we're trying to offer people is not this demand that you walk in absolute holiness and attain uh, perfect obedience so that you can earn the right to live in God's presence. You're never going to accomplish that. We're never going to accomplish that. The good news that we're offering goes like this. God, uh, God saw that all of us were lost and hopeless. And God became man and lived the righteous life that is required for anybody to enter into God's presence. And then God took the punishment in Christ on himself at the cross and paid the penalty for all of us so that we could all be inspired by that love to want to live this way. That, that's the good news. There's hope for you in this good news. If you will turn from sin, if you'll say the words that David says here, I won't set before my eyes things that are worthless. I won't know evil. I won't endure wicked people. I will ponder the way of blamelessness. I will walk with integrity. I will sing of steadfast love, believing that God is going to reward you for that. Believing that God is going to accept you ultimately, not because you've done what's righteous, but because of what Christ did, Christ who was righteous, what he did. If you'll do that, your life will be transformed. And the New Testament shows a fulfillment of this. Maybe you've read Revelation 21 and 22. And maybe you've seen the depiction of that realm where the greater son of David reigns. Where the city has 12 gates and they always stand open. And into that city, no faithless cowards, no detestable murders, murderers, no immoral liars, and no sorcering idolaters will ever enter those gates. Because Jesus is going to fulfill these words, and he's going to cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Jesus, the one who lived out Psalm 101 perfectly, is going to achieve a pure kingdom for God his Father. And those of us who trust him and walk with him, remarkably, I mean, this is astonishing, we're going to reign with him. Let's pray together. Father, would you convince us of the truth of the scriptures? And Lord, would you work in our hearts such that we have confidence that you are God and that your standards are rooted in your everlasting character? And Lord, would you give us boldness against this culture that is so lost and blind and superstitious and foolish? And Lord, would you help us to speak with clarity to the, to the bankruptcy of the authorities that our culture looks to? And God, would you make us winsome advocates of your glory? And Lord, we pray that the gospel will bear much fruit in our lives. We pray that you would make all our hope in Christ alone. And we pray that our experience of your love to us in Christ would make us people who want to live out Psalm 101, people who want to be those who sing of your steadfast love and justice, who ponder the way that is blameless, who refuse to set demonic things before our eyes. And Lord, would you give us the joy of dwelling with the faithful of the land in the city that has foundations, the city where you are the architect, the builder, the lamp, the temple, the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.